Welcome to another edition of the Populous Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Hi, welcome to episode two of the Populist Papers. I'm your host, Colin Kramer, and I need to talk about this Cal Exit thing again. I think I've been had. Now, Alex Jones, I never really knew quite what to make of this guy, but um, he always struck me as some kind of like a spoon feeder agent, you know, like they're out there to tell you exactly what you want to hear or to steer you in a some kind of misdirection now um when i was involved with advocates for an independent california about 10 years ago it was such a joke it was just too ridiculous and too fringe to be taken seriously by anybody but the day that trump got elected this new push for a cal exit it seemed like it had already hit the ground running. And every day there's a new yes on Cal Exit type Facebook page or group that's popping up and I'm being pushed to like it and uh, it makes me a little suspicious. Now, it didn't hurt that a lot of us were still in our denial or bargaining phases after November the 8th, but it's important to... Well, of course, and as a Jeffersonian Democrat, I feel like we should always be looking for new ways to improve our union. And it's important to know that our goal was never secession for its own sake, but the overall betterment of California and the United States. So what if we split California into three states? thereby creating four new Senate seats and help rebalance the power that way. Considering how well-funded these CalExit campaigns seem to be, my Jewish paranoia sets in and goes a little haywire. We all know that Russia really wanted Donald Trump to be our president, to the point they even threatened to start a nuclear war had Clinton become president. And a lot of us assumed this was over Syria or that Trump is deeply in debt to Russian oligarchs and favors to Russia may be his only way out of debt. And aside from all that, Trump may have no idea what kind of pawn he really is. I mean, what if Russia has been playing chess with us for decades while we just thought we were playing checkers? Hey, we win. You lose. It's all over. No, 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 no. They're much more long-term. Uh, Putin is a martial artist himself. And what if Trump is being used by Putin to undermine U.S. credibility and create as much chaos as possible? The fact is, Trump may not even be aware of it. And it's come to my attention that a lot of the big conspiracy theories of the past few decades are Russian psyops. They are masters of fake news. And we're basically living season 20 of the Americans right now. And so much of this conspiracy culture seems designed to make our populace feel completely disconnected from American leadership. And it's working. Alex Jones could very well be a Russian disinfo agent, and all of these secessionist campaigns are probably psyops meant to destabilize our country. CalExit already has an embassy in Moscow, and there's obviously big money involved with a lot of these Western separatist movements. There's something called the anti-globalist movement of Russia, that's behind a lot of this, if you'd like to see for yourself. But uh, Cal Exit is certainly not the grassroots effort that it masquerades as. Aldous Huxley said, The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. We have to really focus 
and stay engaged in the process. Now more than ever. Because if we just go back to bed and tell everyone, eh, you can't do anything, it's all part of the Illuminati, well, that's how the bastards win. By bringing down morale. Don't let them weaken us. I couldn't help but notice this self-appointed leader of the secessionist group, Yes California, which, by the way, changed its name from Sovereign California because I guess no one in the group was sure how to spell the word Sovereign. Uh, well, this guy, he isn't even from California. He's from New York and currently lives in Siberia. Uh, all seems pretty shady to me. So, there is no perfect government out there. The Smurfs came close, but there is something on the inside. The very essence of your own being is the most sovereign mechanism there is. Work on perfecting that essence, and the rest will fall into place. Dion Fortune said that the magician himself is the most powerful magic wand of them all. So whether it's a way to power your car with urine or a simple meditation method that'll recharge all 10 trillion of your bodily cells, we're there. That's what the Populist Papers are all about. Email me or tweet me, C-L-N-K-R-M-R, um, well, at that, or that at gmail.com. Um, we're on Facebook, Populous Papers Podcast. Check it out. And let's figure it out. There's an old friend of mine that's decided to remain anonymous. And he has a car that runs on a diesel-electric hybrid engine. It has four batteries and gets 200 miles to the gallon. Worst part is... This is 1904 technology, and my friend, uh, we'll call him CR, his father made a model of this car in the 70s and toured the country with it. He even sued the three major U.S. auto manufacturers, as well as the federal government, for committing fraud against the American people and withholding this technology from us. That's when he started getting death threats. Not only from enemies here at home, but Japanese automakers were also extremely upset with CR's father because he wouldn't sell the car to them. It was meant to be a gift for our community that still hasn't lived to see the light of day. But we're getting there, slowly but surely. Did you hear about the four girls in Africa that figured out a way how to generate uh, a day's worth of electricity from just one liter of urine? Pretty cool. And there's ways to convert your car to water power and even air power. Not entirely that I know of. These are hybrids as well. But wouldn't it be cool once we can just fill up our own tank in the morning? <laughs> Could be fun. So when we come back, actor, improviser, and playwright Jim Shipley is going to share some of his thoughts and experiences with us on homelessness and the Jeffersonian tradition. So we'll be right back. Old vocals. Of the 
studio is actor improviser and one of my favorite people jim shipley welcome jim how's it going uh it's great i noticed you had to read that off the clipboard <laughs> like, uh, i don't remember what he does or what his name is but he's one of my favorite people <laughs> uh, i wanted to make sure that i got your wording precise actually <laughs> because you know i'm all about precision it's true i'm, I'm the one who told you to say I'm, I'm one of your favorite people <laughs> <laughs> exactly um well it, it I do admit, I love notes, and maybe I'm a little bit too le- much like that guy on the Peanuts with the safety blanket, but you always oh, got to right. have something. Yeah, yeah, some kind of fail-safe. What was that guy's name? Sherman, maybe? Linus? Linus? Was he the one? Yeah, not that. Was that the one with the... Or was that the filthy kid? No. I, that guy... Oh, Pigpen was his name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, he needed a blanket, probably, <laughs> yeah, but Schroeder was he, the one with the blanket. Up. Yeah. You know, this is radio for a reason. We're not really supposed to talk about like how shitty we look and what this place really looks like right now. Oh, the fact that I took <laughs> off my pants is just because it's so hot. So let's get yeah, let's uh, keep it between us. What you're actually seeing right now, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> you got it. Um, although, hey, it's a podcast. Um, this is kind of a private meeting for now because right. even to know about this thing, um, you know, it's it, it's kind of a privilege right now to be a part of this. So. Um, I know you had a really interesting story. A lot of this show focuses on California culture. Mm. And a lot of people know we are the worst when it comes to homelessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York. That's what, what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. New York definitely has a problem, too. But you look at Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Santa Ana, San Diego. Um, a lot of people like to blame Ronald Reagan because he did close down a lot of those facilities and whatnot mm-hmm. uh, when he was governor. Um, but. You know, this is another interesting thing is L.A. just gets such a bad rap. People don't realize that the first V.A. was actually in uh, West L.A. over there. That's why they call it federal and veteran. Mm. Um, and a lot of people were making their way out. It was really hard to get to L.A. at the time. Um, I don't know. It's just hard, hard to get around what you're Because <laughs> um, I don't even know if they had extended the rail over the Tehachapi Mountains yet. So, I mean, that's, that's another reason a lot of bandits and stuff like this area is kind of <laughs> a lot of people were hiding from something. Right. Um, and that, still are. Yeah. And, well, and we could even tie that in with our film conversation we're going to have because uh, you know, there's a lot of different theories why film came to L.A. Some people said it was for more light and the gentler weather. Mm-hmm, but sure. also there are a lot of people hiding from Edison. And the patents, hmm. um, because he had patented a lot of that early film technology. So yeah. people were kind of here in hiding, making these movies really weird. But um, that's when they, Skid Row started. Because they were using his technology exactly. illegally or what? Right. Oh, huh. Interesting. Yeah. He was a businessman and a damn good one, right. it sounds like. That's what they say. But um, unfortunately, a lot of people made that trek all the way to Los Angeles to use the VA clinic. And they were turned away hmm. because they had fought for the wrong side of the war. Which was the Nazis? The um, these were actually Confederate veterans. 
Oh, it oh, was sure, that far yeah, back. It is that old. That's right. And uh, so, I mean, L.A. has kind of had this issue for a long time. Of hating I, Southerners? Well, <laughs> hey, uh, that's another old joke. I have a Southern accent. Southern Californian. <laughs> yeah. That it's is. But Southern, um, yeah. apparently FDR had to pass an amendment to make sure that veterans benefits were, you know, all soldiers were right. included. It's not something you had control over. Because they were but, all immediately afterwards forgiven. Uh, it might have been Grant uh, or it might have been who. Oh, gosh, this is terrible. Who took over after uh, Lincoln was assassinated? Uh, Jackson, I believe. Was it? Either way, I, I believe that they were all pardoned immediately afterwards, so they should have been, you know, taken care of regardless. They were Americans, uh, much to their own chagrin. <laughs> Sorry, Johnson. I get Johnson yep. and Jackson yep. confused. Right, it was Johnson. Yep. Right. Um, interesting, but obviously there's a long history of homelessness in mm-hmm. L.A. Yeah. Um, in fact, it came to my attention recently. Went on a little walking tour of Skid Row, and they pointed out that the term "off the wagon." came from uh oh his name escapes me right now Stuart Lyman I think it was he started hmm. the Union Rescue Mission um and he was able to get a lot of the prominent business people in LA to tithe I think 10% um of their income Standard, annually yeah. right and they were able to create this amazing rescue mission but the part of the condition was they only wanted it in a certain part of LA they didn't want people getting too comfortable so a lot of the treatment programs were mobile units you know we still see uh, medical mobile units uh, these days but apparently they were literally on wagons back then mm. and you'd get literally get on a wagon when you join one of the programs were they and wagons oh well, that, uh, that's a whole <laughs> nother thing yeah. Irish uh, yeah <laughs> discrimination yeah. um yeah in fact there's a burger town which is also a food truck that's a kind of a weird <coughs> hipster thing i know people from portland who like have not eaten from any restaurant that doesn't come from a truck <laughs> since 2010 but there's one called paddy wagon um they've got a great logo they say our cows are vegan so you don't have to be <laughs> uh you know what if i'm gonna if i'm gonna uh, incorporate veganism into my life that would probably be the one way i would do it so. <laughs> Um, but I tried taking a friend there once, and he happened to be Irish American as well. And he's like, "Paddy wagon, that's some racist shit right there." And yeah. I'm like, "Uh, uh boo boo." They spell it P A T T Y, not P A D D. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, since I didn't see it written down, I didn't get it. All right, now I do. Okay, you know what? Never mind. It's not racist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll come back to that. Um, but this idea that it's all. Skid Row has been centralized from the beginning. Like, oh, we only want them east of Main Street. And, um, you know, even those wagon programs, they were kind of meant to only be temporary situations. And, you know, eventually you'd leave the program, you'd get off the wagon. So hmm. it's weird how a lot of these terms still resonate. Now, I want to, yeah. Um, and I definitely want to talk about the idea of decentralizing because um, that's a whole nother issue in and of itself. But uh, I understand you have a little bit of experience firsthand with homelessness. Right, yes. You understand that because uh, I told you that. <laughs> well, would you be willing to share some of your story? For... Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I guess uh, for the uh, listeners who don't know this story, you obviously are intimately familiar with it. Uh, but uh, to make a... Mm, well, okay, I was when I was attending a school uh, uh, that we actually we attended together, you and I. Uh, but we, uh, because it was a, a woman's college, uh, you and I weren't technically considered students. We were apprentices, which meant we were not just students, but we were also employees. It's kind uh, of the worst of both worlds. It was absolutely Treated like slave of, labor, yeah. yet the responsibilities of being a full-time right. staff. Without uh, much in the way of, of benefit, certainly, uh, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good time for the year it lasted for me, for the two years it lasted for you. Um so because of that, though, I, uh, I was both an employee, uh, a student, and actually, I guess, adding a third, uh, a resident. Uh, I had to give up, you know, my house that I lived in before I went to that school. So I was very beholden to this college, obviously. Uh, then I was uh, uh, wrongly accused of a very, uh, um, well, let's just, just say a bad crime. Uh, and uh, and it, it, it was, the accusation occurred on the campus so during a... You know, I don't even know how to, it was obviously you know it was the summer program. I don't know how to describe they, it. They run a summer theater festival, right. so we were kind of stuck there. Uh, so, uh, and even though the 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 charge was idiotic, um, and it was you know because it was so idiotic, it ended up being thrown out of court because it was it was frivolous and it was silly. 
and and uh, anyway, to, uh, to cut a long story short, um, there went my uh, my scholarship, there went my uh, enrollment, there went my job, uh, there went my housing. Uh, so like basically everything like that could have been taken from me was taken all at one time. So I I, I ended up homeless, and um, yeah, uh, what a great time that was. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, um, I think a lot of people take it for granted how easily things can just cluster fuck and like yeah. and turn upside down. It's uh, yeah, I mean uh, when you you know I mean I I come from a, a blue collar background and I have never had a lot of money in my adult life. Uh, people don't realize that when you're poor, all it takes is one or two bad things. You know, really one, and, and then it just it uh, snowballs, it avalanches, and you you find that yourself on the street. Um, uh, or in my case, since it was Mer- Missouri in in a park, you know? <laughs> <laughs> even better. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was better. It was a little more comfortable sleeping on the ground uh, in a park <laughs> than it was on. I, I imagine on the street. Um, so yeah, you know, I'd, I'd find myself, uh, sleeping on park benches or, uh, under trees in public parks a lot of times. Um, a little, a little, uh, a little tip <laughs> in case this happens to any of you all. Uh, I learned, uh, if you, if you're more nocturnal, which I am, as you know, uh, already very much nocturnal, I'd be awake during the, the evening hours as much as I could be and I'd read or whatever, uh, during the evening and I'd go to the public library during the day and go to one of their reading rooms and I'd sleep there. Uh, like I'd fall asleep in like one of those big chairs because uh, it was the only way to, you know, get a couple hours of sleep a lot of times. Because it may probably not surprise most people, but sleeping on the ground or on a park bench, not exactly the most comfortable thing <laughs> you'd ever imagine. So a nice, even though it's an upright position, sleeping in a chair is, you know, all things considered uh, a better option. Definitely. <clears throat> one of the few socialist institutions we have left in America, the public library, the public library. for everybody. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. Now, we talked about some of the difficulties and especially how it affects sleep cycles. Mm-hmm. I think that the last time we talked about this, um, I certainly had an epiphany because you brought up a point that but, most folks tend to have backwards about. Uh, yeah, I mean, because obviously alcoholism and drug usage are uh, frequently associated with homelessness, as I assume what you're referring to. Um and I think the uh, the stereotype holds true to some degree. I think obviously, uh, excuse me, um, you know, uh, really bad alcoholism and, and drug usage, of course, will lead to homelessness uh, because you know, I mean, I, I met addicts who, when you know, if every dime that you ever get into your hand goes, <laughs> you know, to drug usage, obviously you can't afford a home anymore. Um, but what people don't realize is that a lot. Uh, I'd say in at least fifty percent of the cases, it's actually the other way around. Um, because of, you know, like like we were talking about, uh, unfortunate circumstances that just befall people and they find themselves homeless, uh, people don't realize that, particularly when you don't have a job, there are actually a lot of hours in the day. The day is long, and uh, and life in that circumstance is long. So, you know, what do you do? You, you don't have a job. You don't have anywhere to go. You don't have anywhere to be. you got to do something to kill the time, and a lot of the homeless turn to drugs or alcohol just to to kill the time um and i think we were joking earlier about my irish heritage my famous irish drunkenness uh so i've always and, and as as i think you know i'm also i've also always my entire life been a pretty bad insomniac so i've i've frequently used alcohol to uh, to self-medicate to just you know if it's five six in the morning and you got to be up at nine and you still can't fall asleep you know you have a few beers and knock yourselves out hey a lot of people uh, forget even during prohibition it was available for medicinal purposes mm. well and that's yeah and that's that's what it was a lot of times like i i would find that uh now i mean i was i did i had no money and i i never i never begged or anything so at that at that time in my life that, that wasn't really a uh uh, an option but for a lot of people it's like if you are like I am if you're an insomniac and uh, you know particularly people who find that they can't sleep on a park bench like they're, they're just their body won't allow them to uh, you know you've got to you know you've got to turn your, your yourself off somehow and so a lot of people will turn to like if they can't get to sleep otherwise they will use drugs and alcohol to do that so that's why uh, those are two main reasons I would say excuse me um uh, the homelessness actually in, uh, frequently precedes uh, the drug and alcohol abuse, which is obviously uh, contrary to what people 
assume. Interesting. Um, I think we've all known at least a few people in our lives that have, um, you know, had to live on the streets at some point or the other. And if it's not on the streets, it might be living out of their car for a while. Right. I've known some people, they moved to L.A. and their first job was at the at the gym so that they could use the showers, things like that. Yeah. And, and I, I want to clarify, like, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't have it as bad as a lot of people. I did have, I still had my truck, which you packed for me when I left <laughs> Iowa. Uh, That's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, so every, everything, yeah, everything I owned was in the back of that truck, so I, I couldn't really uh, sleep in it. I couldn't, I couldn't recline the chair. Uh, so, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people, obviously, don't, they have no home and no car, so that's even worse, obviously. Um, so I didn't have it as bad as a lot of people do. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, uh, I would, uh, I had my sleeping bag, thankfully. I brought that to Iowa, so I had that and a pillow. So I would find myself sometimes, depending on where I was, I would actually sleep on top of my truck. <laughs> I'd, I'd roll out my sleeping bag. That's as right, like it mattress. was summertime, wasn't I, it? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was summertime, so uh, I'd sleep on top of my truck. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, if it didn't get too, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't know, but like insanely hot to where right. I, that was just, you know, unfeasible. The humidity in the Midwest. Humidity is in Missouri is nightmarish. <laughs> yeah. Which is why another reason that it's hard, hard to sleep during the day or uh, during the night a lot of times. So I'd like I'd go to the public library and sleep during the day in the AC. Right. Now, maybe you can speak to this as well. Um, a lot of people who find these, themselves in these situations, um, especially in more urban areas like mm-hmm. East Side L.A. or downtown. I hear that um, there's sort of a recurring fear that maybe another homeless person is going to mess with you or something like that. So it seems like that will definitely make insomnia a lot worse, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You sleep more lightly if you're sleeping, which, like like we've kind of discussed, a lot of times it's not so much sleeping as being unconscious. Uh, but, yeah, you got to protect yourself to that. In, in the community, it's known as getting rolled because they literally roll you over and pull shit out of your pocket. Wow. Yeah, that's where that term comes from. All these uh, literal origins yeah. of popular <laughs> terms. Yeah, words. That's, I love it. Yeah. Well, um, something that I took away when I went on that tour of Skid Row, um, we had a few different guides and sort of hosts and speakers. It was a really interesting event uh, yeah. put on by Esoteric, and I'd love to have Kim Cooper at some time. She does all kinds of uh, kind of noir tours of L.A., see oh. Raymond Chandler's L.A., oh, I love that. Um, serial killer tours. Just, you know, there's always a different theme, and it's definitely... You know, the old Hollywood kind of vibe and awesome. something else we've bonded over oh, sure, sure. Uh, throughout the years. Um, but a real takeaway, uh, I believe it was Officer Dion Joseph. I had never heard of him before, but as soon as he started speaking, he was saying, folks, don't believe the papers, which made me think, oh, man, I got to start reading these papers. <laughs> Whatever papers uh, he's talking about, <laughs> I need to read them so I can not believe them. Uh, he's obviously a controversial figure. He's clearly not talking about the populist papers. <laughs> because those are always to be believed. Now now we're talking. Well, exactly. And that's why we're trying to bring as many different points of view together and kind of figure out what, what are the real issues, you know. Um, and I think now in retrospect, he was talking about, oh, what was the proposition? I believe it was 215. We no longer arrest people for small amounts of drugs. Mm. And that's, you know, most people are pretty excited about Prop 64, legalization of marijuana. And, you know, it's so tough when there's this much money spent in elections because I'll read some articles that convince me, wow, we cannot vote for the legalization of weed because, um, you know, what it's going to do, make it, it, make it illegal for people that are under 21. As it is, we don't arrest people anymore right. for marijuana. And uh, so going back to Dion Joseph, it sounded like he had real issues with that um, Prop 215 in 2014. We can't incarcerate people for small amounts of drugs. It sounds like um, a lot of the authority figures kind of, they know who the gang leaders are. They know the people, and they're kind of entitled yeah, to that they, judgment. They characters. So even if they need to get you for something petty at the time, it's a lot better to bring them in for something small. And, um, well, basically, I'm going around the pillar to get to the podium here. <laughs> but the whole Skid Row situation, um, centralize something in one area like that, and this is what really impressed me about uh, Officer Joseph's speech. He said that if just one facility, even a, you know, a small, little humble, one-story facility, were to be opened up in every neighborhood in L.A., there'd be no Skid Row. Mm-hmm. And I was there while they even just 
dumped a busload of battered women there because they were being just thrown around from facility to facility. Um, I don't know if overcrowding was the issue, but somehow they just wound up downtown right there at the Union well, Rescue Mission, and they, they had to get them back on the bus. No arrangements were made. And, you know, people are just dumped there, and it creates, you know, everyone's like, oh, don't ever go east of Main Street. But if every community would step up and do their part just a little bit, open one facility per community, then we could decentralize. And that's kind of a, mac- a micro for the bigger issue, too, about centralization of power. And Yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, the thing is, uh, that's a tough thing. Uh uh, particularly in a city of this size, what because what do you do with that? You know, and and I, I sympathize uh, with the certainly with the cops, um, and to a much lesser degree with the lawmakers, uh, because in, in I mean, in a city like Detroit, I mean, sh- you know, shit, your your homeless problem should be solved. It's like all these empty ass houses that have just been sitting here for a decade or longer. Just let every every homeless person who wants to, hey, look. Here's a house. Hey, you got a house. That is clearly not the situation in L.A. where the market is uh, saturated beyond belief. I mean, the amount of money we pay in rent here, it's it's insanity. And that actually um, brings back up the the idea of my homelessness. Uh, and I, th- I thank whatever power above or below, whatever, uh, <laughs> every day. Uh, well, not every day. I don't think about it every day, thank goodness. But um, – I, I'm very thankful that I was homeless, uh, and that's probably the only time you'll ever hear that phrase. I'm thankful that I was homeless, uh, but no, I am. I'm thankful that when I was homeless, it was in Missouri, where uh, I was able to claw myself out of hom- homelessness. I do. I sincerely do not believe that had it happened here in L.A. with rent prices the way they are, with the job market as terrible as it is, and so forth, I think I would still be homeless today. I don't think, I, you know, unless I had had the uh, the capacity of mind to get the fuck out and go somewhere else. Um, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, scrape together a few dollars and, and f- eventually get a place in Missouri, you know, where before when we went to that college together, my rent, uh, and I was a bartender, so I made good money, uh, but my rent was $400 a month for a two-bedroom apartment. Oh, boy. $400 a month. And, and granted, I lived in the poor side of town, uh, in a kind of an older, rundown house, but four hundred dollars a month for a two-bedroom, you know, obviously, in circumstances like that, it 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 makes more, uh, it makes it possible, I guess, you know, to get yourself out of that situation. Here, I can't even imagine. Wow. You know? And that's and that's the thing. It goes, <coughs> excuse me, to what you were saying uh, about like the centralization of this. It's like nobody, obviously, nobody wants homeless encampments in their neighborhood, and I. I don't. I don't think it's a lack of sympathy, and I don't necessarily, uh, you know, begrudge them the the neighborhood people that instinct. Um, but this, but the what's the solution? You know, like other than centralizing, as you were talking about, like what, what I mean, in this city, what can you, what can you do? I mean, it's it's a, that's that's one for the ages. It's in tough, my, in my opinion. Yeah. And as much as this is a whole nother can of worms, of course. Um, as much as I support a state's right to secede <laughs> in the Jeffersonian tradition, sure. if the government has proved itself to have abused its powers mm-hmm. and the citizens want to fulfill their duty to create a new, a better form of government, a more perfect union, mm-hmm. uh, I am completely against secession on a city scale. Oh, sure. When you have a place like Beverly Hills <laughs> surrounded on all sides by another city, you don't have any business you know, it's just been an obstacle. It took decades to extend the metro line because yeah. of their property values. Oh, and, and, st- and, and it still it was done in such a horrible way. But the thing is, and this is, you know what, this is something that people need to think about a lot more often, is that we um, we look at things from the prism of today, which is a huge problem. Uh, and, and not only is it... Um, uh, it, it gives you false impressions of reality, but it's also it's it's unfair. You cannot judge a past culture based on today's mores. That's that's wrong. I mean, let's put it this way: uh, five hundred years from now, people are going to think we are a bunch of like hateful, illiberal, undemocratic motherfuckers. And is that fair? <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Like we're working, a lot of us are working very hard to fix things right now and to be condemned by, you know, our grandchildren or whatever as being hateful because we don't hold their values in a completely different time period. That's wrong. 
you know. And um, so anyway, what, what that what um, the <laughs> what brought that up is the idea of Beverly Hills. Like they didn't, uh, you know, secede from L.A. Uh, L.A. just swallowed up all these other neighborhoods around Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills was never a part of Los Angeles. You know, it, it didn't. It, it just it was rich enough, I guess, that they were able to resist being swallowed up by the uh, the greater city. They had good you attorneys, know? right? Uh, <laughs> sure, one of one of many reasons. So it's not necessarily fair to say, oh, Beverly Hills, like how dare they, you know, uh, pull away from L.A. Well, they didn't. You know, they were never part of L.A. I think, yeah. Um, just to clarify a couple things, Culver City was the one. There's kind of the fascist four, as I used to. <laughs> West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Culver City, and Santa Monica, and the and what hypocrisy. About, what about Holmby Hills and like the, the like the insanely rich places? Those that are part of LA or? Uh, yeah, I, like Echo Park. Oh, for those of you that don't know, Jim and I were also roommates for uh, about fifteen about months. A year. Yeah, yeah, a little over a year, maybe. Yeah. Um, fascinating period, I think, in both of our lives, but. Um, yeah, like Echo Park, a lot of those communities like Holmby Hills and Brentwood, they're technically unincorporated neighborhoods. Interesting. Right. Yeah, I I don't know. Real estate is such a bizarre world. Yeah. But it's oh. Holmby Hills is interesting because like we, we talk about everybody knows Beverly Hills. It's like, "Oh, that's the rich place of LA." But people and I think they do this on purpose. Like some people because of, you know, the Fresh Prince know what Bel Air is, but very few people know what Holmby Hills is. And it's like I wish you could see my hands right now because I'm putting Beverly Hills like above the rest of L.A., uh, like right at, right at about shoulder level. <laughs> now, Holmby Hills, is I'm reaching as high as I can possibly reach. That's how far above, as far as like richness, Holmby Hills is above every other part of L.A. Like that's insanely rich area, like a bunch of, you know, Tudor-style homes, like the oldest, nicest homes of the L.A. Uh, area that still exists. It's place <laughs> well speaking of california culture yeah. and people that are rich as fuck <laughs> pop oh, quiz. You're, you're making me you're making me shy oh come on pop quiz what neighborhood did saved by the bell take place in are you doing your lambie <laughs> impression is that what that was let's leave lambie out of this <laughs> if you're listening lambie shout out I'm sorry. What did you say? What, what part did uh do you need multiple choice no no, no. uh the question was what, what part neighborhood uh-huh and or a city. Uh-huh. We don't know the legalities is every single part of town. Yeah. Did Saved by the Bell take place? Saved in? by the Bell? Was it Marina Del Rey? Oh, no. Those kids would never live down there. <laughs> uh, Malibu. I don't know. Was it? Very close. Mm. That would have been mul- one of my multiple choice options. Where I would assume that like the, the one season where they all worked on the beach would have been Santa Monica because just that's where all those beach clubs That would have been your A option. And I think you just said your C option. So what's right in between? Not necessarily physically, but what do you think would have been my B? Oh, Palisades? Pacific Palisades. Pacific Palisades. Yeah. I think it, you'd have to, you know, bit torrent the entire season, because I don't, or the entire series, rather, <laughs> yeah. to find just the right episode where they reveal that. But yeah, it was Pacific Palisades. First uh, first play I ever wrote uh, two years ago, which got produced uh, two years ago. And it's actually uh, being published this year. So that's I should have added that to my bio. Damn it! I should have written <laughs> published playwright. Well, congratulations! Uh, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, this should be coming out. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry, not this year. It'll, it'll be coming out early next year. I forget that we're at the end of this year already. Oh, jeez. Um, but yeah, the uh, part of it took place in uh, Pacific Palisades because I was trying to indicate uh, a certain type of uh, you know privilege and richness that occurred. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Um, I do want to speak. Uh, well, I think it's might be a good thing that we kind of get more. Um, little more empathetic with each generation so it makes sure, sense that sure. over time they'd look back and be like what um to a degree even they'll probably look at cars and how many people died in car accidents and think of us as the biggest idiots you guys allowed cars to be legal i mean we do our own weird calculus to justify the yeah. risk and the reward yeah. and they'll probably look back and be like how many people died in car accidents every year you morons well sure but i mean you know there's i, I think that's true of lots of things i sincerely believe that there will come a time when there will be no unwanted pregnancies and people will look back and be like, oh, my God, you murdered, you know, unborn children. Arr! And is that fair? I don't th- you know, I don't think it is. Uh, so to, to you know, I, I agree with you that it's, it's it's good that we become more empathetic. I hope we do. But part of that empathy, in my opinion, is being empathetic towards those who came before us and considering the time period in which they lived. You know, definitely an interesting debate and, and it deserves more attention. OK, so. We were talking earlier about Jeffersonian 
um, policies, especially as they regard to patents. And I actually claimed, you know, I was going through some of my notes and it almost looks like a total religious freaks New Testament, like how they highlight the entire thing. Like if Jesus said it, it's highlighted the entire, you know, New Testament. And I'm going through and I'm finding the the, the King James version where it's in red, right? Exactly. So he does know your stuff. Yeah. Well, I I shouldn't because as an Irish Catholic, we didn't use the King James. Right. So I I wasn't entirely sure about that. Right. We had said some um, quotes earlier, but basically what Thomas Jefferson was saying, his point about um, patents and that there was sort of a free exchange of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, um, His take on patents was, to paraphrase at least, um, that men are of nature and hence men's ideas are also part of nature. And that sharing our ideas and discoveries, it's almost a moral obligation hmm. just for the betterment of mankind and, and yeah. the earth. That mimetic process. Right. And that even if, okay, you have such a great invention, let's say, okay, maybe you can live off the profits from that for your lifetime. It was never, a patent was never meant to be this dynastic mm-hmm. kind sure. of thing. Sure. And I know that your dad and your grandpa. Mm-hmm kind of upheld this Jeffersonian tradition uh, <laughs> in a way. Right. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, they, um, uh, they're both chiropractors, or they were both chiropractors. My grandfather has passed. My uh, father is still a chiropractor. Or no, I'm sorry, he's retired, but he's still with us. But now my sister is also a chiropractor, so we've got three, three generations. Um, and that's actually the interesting thing about my going into the business I have gone into because every single member of my family is in healthcare. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm back home, like, well, what's Jimmy? What's he up to? What does Jimmy do? And he pretends for everything. Uh, so, yeah, I'm uh, very highly respected in my family. <laughs> but uh, ultrasound is a uh, process that I think people are, for the most part, aware, uh, aware of a type of uh, political, uh, political, Jesus Christ, we've been talking about too much politics. It's a type of uh, physical therapy, I guess, is how I classify it. Um, but it's also, uh, it's a process that's kind of hard on a lot of people. It it, it requires like direct stimulation and it it can cause problems, uh, particularly in joints and so forth. So my grandfather, along with my newly minted chiropractor father, uh, came up with a new ultrasound technique where they ran the, uh, this is embarrassing. I don't know what ultrasound is. Uh, the, uh, the The waves, I don't know, whatever it is. They ran it through water. Uh, instead of using direct contact, which made it a much uh, uh, gentler way of providing that kind of um, uh, therapy. Probably more effective, too. With well, yeah, I mean, uh, anything that's going to cause, I mean, not in all situations, but anything, I mean, it just stands to reason that anything that causes less inflammation and less pain uh, is going to be more effective, you know, because those things obviously diminish returns. So, uh, yeah, so they came up with that process, and uh the, I think the part that you were impressed about with it was that they could have theoretically patented it, uh, but my dad's uh, my my dad's whole thing was that he wanted to help people, not become a millionaire. So he he just uh, he you know went to every uh, seminar he was invited to, and he taught everybody how to do it. He spread it all over, and now people all over the country use it. Uh, so yeah, theoretically, I could be like a billionaire. Probably. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, obviously, um, uh, like a physical, you know, like a car is much easier to patent, I would assume, than like a, a, a process, you know, a PT process. Intellectual property. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's even necessarily the case, but he, he could have certainly made it like an intellectual property type of thing, I'm sure. But, uh, uh, and you know what, I, I, we actually probably approached this conversation the wrong way. Um, because this is something I discovered later, later on in life <laughs> because I'm 80. Uh, and now that I'm old, you know, uh, it's something I discovered late in life. No, uh, but I grew up, uh, you know, with an adequate amount of respect for your father, as one does. Um, but I just, I thought of him as a chiropractor, and sure, thank you. Uh, I thought of him as, uh, you know, regular guy, like you think of your dad. Uh, it wasn't until many years later that he told me, actually, reluctantly, I don't know, I was asking about this process, and he was like, well, actually, your, your grandfather and I came up with this, and, uh, and it blew my mind. Because, you know, I mean, I've, you you know, we all have our, a, a, a proper degree of respect, or we should have, for our parents. But then when you find out, like, they've done something, like, really impressive, you're like, 
oh, like it, it's like a paradigm shift. You know, it like changes the way you look at someone who's very close, like someone you think you know very well. And then I find out that these seminars he's going to, like every few months or whatever, he's not attending these seminars. He's giving this, like he's a, a keynote speaker and stuff. And I'm like, what? Like my mind, I'm like, mind is blowing. I'm like, you're in charge of this thing. I mean, he's not in charge. He's not like you know the the guys who put it together. But he's like the uh, the 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 speaker that Guest people come to see. Yeah, like the people come from all over the country to to hear my dad speak. And I'm like. What? Like my dad, this guy who walks around the house in underwear and a cardinal's hat, this guy is the one that people come to see. You gotta be kidding me! Uh, so it was like a, it was definitely a very uh, uh, awakening moment, you know. Absolutely, I, I know the feeling. Uh, my surrogate father, Peter Biger, Peter Biger, took years for me to extract this fact out of him, but he actually invented hip hop back in <laughs> Greenwich. Greenwich Village in 1963, uh-huh. uh, kind of a gypsy Jewish thing. We'll save that story for it. We'll get him on the line actually. Yeah. And uh, and my mom too. Um, you know she does tarot. Also invented hip hop. She uh, close. Um, she invented a new system of tarot reading. No kidding. Oh, it wasn't until like a decade because it was always around me. So we kind of take it for granted, and it's almost a joke too. Oh yeah, that's their thing. And it'd be like, oh yeah, do you want a reading? Do you want a reading? And it wasn't <laughs> until I saw other people doing tarot readings. You know, we're in L.A. There's a lot of people that are into mysticism and prophecy and the dark arts and the new age, all that good stuff. Oh, and, you know, we got to talk about your dad and crystals and stuff, too. Crystals. Oh, right. right. Yeah, I'm looking oh. at your list that you sent me right now. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I always like my guests to be prepared. You can have the option. You can be a control freak like me and write a billion different notes on 10 different clipboards or you can as be you, the exact opposite, as you see before you like you me. can wing it or you can do a little bit of both yeah i, I literally did not I, I looked at the list you sent me and haven't thought about it since <laughs> we're, i just wanted to speak off the cuff we're extreme but i impressed you with the lists absolutely and you know we're extremely yeah. busy yeah. too and so in retrospect sometimes. given my performance tonight I, I wish i had prepared a little bit but uh <laughs> well well a lot of this appreciation for our parental figures it comes from life experience we get out sure. there we see how these other people are doing it and it's like yeah, boy you suck at uh, this. Dad did you this. think we fuck around <laughs> yeah i've seen a much better way so you know, let's hear more about this invention i think uh yeah i was certainly a teenager uh, i may have been outside of high school uh or post high school uh when i found this out but i was still fairly young and when i found this out i'm like what what well, then why didn't you patent it oh my god we could be so rich you know because you're a stupid kid and you don't you don't think about the repercussions of something like that and he and he said what I believe I said earlier, which is that, uh, you know, he's not he doesn't want to be rich. He wants to heal people. Uh, and that's like one of the first times I recall really respecting my father, not as my dad, but as a man, as an innovator. As, well, as as a man, you know, like I, I, I we all respect our parents as our parents. But this was like, I think one of the first times I was like, I respect him, you know, if he's not my father, I, res- I, I respect this person, this his man. His principles. A, yeah, as a, yeah, his principles as an innovator, as you said, as, uh, as just a, a good dude trying to do the right thing, you know? Yeah. It's almost, um, you know, and we can get into this too, um, acting sometimes. If, you, if someone forgets their lines or if someone's just kind of improvising something, um, this may not be in the acting world, but wherever, you often notice people looking up. As if God or the heavens or the aliens are going to send them the right line or the right idea. And I heard a fascinating take on this. It may have been from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He said, we're so conditioned physically by looking up to our elders that we're used to, for the answers, we look look up. Interesting. Right. So there is a real archetypal sort of, it's embedded in us. Huh. Yeah, that could be where that comes from. That's interesting. Uh, whether it's looking up to God or just looking up to what is God as a child, which is your parents. Right. Uh, interesting. So it's it's fascinating. The more we learn about them, the more we can kind of look at them in a totally different way. All right, great. Yeah, let's move on to the other things. You, uh, I, I think you're going to get a lot more material out of this. You were talking about noir, which we both fucking love. How'd you get into that? How, how did I get into noir? Well, I'll tell you, Colin. <laughs> I'm so um, glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. Um, I don't. You know what? I've always. It's always been a um, a, a part of my personality is that I, uh, my love of like old things. You know, 
Golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, well, but even before I even knew what that was, I remember I was probably 13 years old. And um, that's about the age, you know, we kind of start getting into music, you know, around that age. discover a lot of things at age 13. Yeah, like right around there. It might have been 12, you know, whatever. Uh, But I found uh, my dad, and this is so funny because my dad doesn't know anything about music. And I, I love him to death, but he knows dick about music. Do you think he's listening right now? Well, not at the moment, but he might in the future. <laughs> uh, well, and here's the thing. To his credit, my dad, who doesn't really listen to or really have much appreciation for music, the music he does like, it's the like like the smart set, like the smartest. Like He loves Patsy Cline. He loves Sam and Dave. Like He loves like the best music. But other than that, he doesn't listen to it, and he doesn't care about it. So anyway, I was uh, going through uh, my dad and my mom's because my mom was still alive at this point. I was going through one of their uh, through their car, and I came across this CD of this guy that I'd heard of, and I'm like Frank Sinatra, huh? <laughs> <laughs> <I've heard of laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're a kid, you know, he's 12 years old. You're like, oh, I've heard of this guy, and I put the goddamn thing in, and Jesus Christ. It blew my fucking mind, and I was like, "This, this is what I, this is what I, what I've been looking for." Like I, I felt like in uh, Back to the Future, like, "Hey Marvin, it's your cousin. You know that sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this." And then, and then the speakers came on, and it was goddamn Frank Sinatra, and I was like, "Holy shit! Yes, this is the sound I've been looking for." Because uh, I mean, I grew up, uh, like I said, my my dad wasn't huge into music. Uh, we went to Branson a lot, so I heard a lot of country, which I loved. Uh, and I didn't, and I didn't necessarily know what was country and what wasn't. How far away was Branson, Missouri? Uh, from Ed- probably about Edwards- three hours from where I grew up. Ed- Edwardsville. Uh, yeah, three hours driving, uh, so pretty close. Um, and when you're a kid, you don't know like styles of music. You don't know like, oh, country is a different thing than jazz, which is a different thing than pop, which is a different thing from rock, which you is you don't know that. Like music is music. You just show up wherever you show up. Right. So I grew up around a lot of like uh, Patsy Cline, Alabama, uh, Garth Brooks, that kind of shit. And I didn't realize it was country. And I loved it, and I still do. Uh, but I heard this thing that turned out to be jazz. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And it blew my goddamn mind. And I, I from then on, it was just anything I could find. I, I discovered AMC, uh, American Movie Classics, which at that time, actually played American movie classics. <laughs> you know, not uh, The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, which don't get me wrong, I, I thank God every day that AMC switched over to the shit they're doing now because as much as I love classic movies, Breaking Bad, uh, Walking Dead, Mad Men, that shit's better. So I'm, I'm glad they did that because we still have TCM, so it's fine. Uh, it was the 90s. Yeah, it was a different time. So I, I, I figured out that I could actually not just listen to Sinatra, but I could see him. On, on old movies so I started watching old movie musicals and I'm like okay I like this I like this a lot uh, and, I, and I still do but there's always kind of like a little bit like something missing I'm like it, it could be better like it could be you know uh, like I like this a lot but mm, uh, maybe there's something else out there so I kept, I kept watching more and more on AMC and, uh, and finally it turned away from like uh, musicals and light comedy and don't get me wrong the entire time this was all happening i was still listening to other jazz vocalists i got into billy holiday at the age of like 14 or 15 you have to understand in in the middle of like uh hillbillyville uh illinois you know population 2200 uh it was weird that this you know 14 year old kid is listening to billy holiday you know, like, it was uh, like getting into punk rock when everybody else was listening to like Coolio. Sure, and exactly. Stuff in my town, yeah. Um, like I was the only when we went to watch the movie Clueless when they made the joke about Billie Holiday. I was the only person in the entire fucking theater, kid or adult, who got it. Uh, when uh, wow. Billy Madison, when they made the joke about Miles Davis, again, I was like fourteen years old. I was the only person in the theater, child or adult, who got the joke about Miles Davis. Um, Do you think those things made you want to move out of the 
No, 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 because I didn't. Well, if anything, it made me want to stay because I felt like the cool guy. I'm like, oh, I'm. You guys don't. Get, you don't get the cool joke about uh, Miles Davis. You don't realize he's like the architect of the cool movement. What a bunch of douchebags! I'm the king. You know. No, it wasn't that. Um, but it, it was kind of cool that I was like the only person who was getting these jokes. So this whole time, I'm, I'm listening to. I uh, got into uh, uh, Miles Davis, probably around the age of 14, maybe 15. Uh, Billy Holiday. It wasn't. It would be another few years before I discovered the great, in my opinion, who is Chet Baker, West Coast style. You should love this guy. Um, but yeah, I was getting into all these guys, and I'm watching. I you were gonna say Duke Ellington. Or oh well, Duke. Well, that's Thelonious a Monk or something. Well, Duke like. Ellington is a different okay. era, and Ch- I love Chet Baker. Okay, I'll take that. I mean, I, yeah, Chet Baker. I mean, he's the great of the uh, of the cool movement, in my opinion. Because I, lo- I love I love uh, Miles Davis, but I. I you know what? I shouldn't qualify. Miles Davis is great, uh, obviously, and Chet Baker is also different great. department. Well, yeah, it's East Coast versus West Coast. That's all it is. They're both amazing, but Miles is is West. I'm sorry, East, and and Chet is West. You know. So anyway, so I'm watching all these movies. I'm watching. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, Anchors Away. You know, and uh, what else was Sinatra in these different these different movie musicals? And so then yeah. I get I get into uh, I'm like, well, fuck, I gotta watch more Sinatra. I I come across the Man with the Golden Arm, which was dark, and uh, and weird, and 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 for a kid, you know, again, I was like 15 years old or whatever. Uh, if you don't know the plot of the movie, he's a heroin addict, which for a movie from the 40s is very dark. Golden uh, the arm. man with the golden arm, exactly. Like that song, Golden Sun, who right. did that, Stranglers. Mm-hmm. It's all about the the golden. That's the closest you can come to tasting sunshine, is right? Through, through heroin, right? And it, and it's two dudes like you and I who, in our day, have done a shitload of drugs. Like we, oh no, is that not not okay to talk about? <laughs> uh, Some of my students might hear. Oh, this one if day. they hear that, well, but you I, know what? I'm I, just kidding. It was just me. I've done a lot of drugs. I think they can handle it. I think they can handle it. So the man with the golden arm, which is you know this dark story about this uh, heroin addict, which obviously is uh, uncommon for the '40s, uh, that led me down a very dark path. And uh, and I, you know what? I, and I don't want to necessarily say that it was that movie because I don't necessarily remember it as such. The movie that I really remember as changing my life as far as like my views on art, particularly in storytelling, you know, theater, film, and so forth, is the great, great noir classic, This Gun for Hire, starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. And that was the movie that blew my fucking mind and really uh, changed my whole perception about what I thought movies could be, what I thought a lot of things could be, and I, I, that's one I think everybody should look up. Like if you're if you're looking for a great classic movie, if you're looking for a way into noir, if you're looking into a way into like art that's like you know uh, dark or creepy or whatever, check out this Gun for Hire. Um, it's it's an absolute classic, and it, and it does. Um, it has the problems of movies of its generation where like you know the the code uh forced them to have like kind of like kind of a sort of happy ending formulaic well it wasn't no it was definitely not formulaic but um you know the code dictated that if a bad guy was one of your characters he had to get like justice at the end so without spoiling the end uh you know justice came about to uh, to one of our lead characters um but they still they still managed to make it a, like a, a phenomenal story, and over the years, you know, th- that's that's what got me into noir. It was the first one that I really remember being like, "Oh my god!" Like this this is something that uh, it's you uh, that I want to like make part of my life about was that movie. Tell us about what you got lined up. How can people catch you? I know you got a lot of exciting projects recently. Yeah, uh, gosh, you can probably uh, see me in a bunch of commercials right now. Uh, uh, a Ford uh, commercial, a couple 76 gasoline commercials. I was just, uh, this month I was on uh, Superstore on NBC, episode number three, I want to say. I was just on um, The Odd Couple on CBS, episode number two. 
Right, uh, that was a big deal. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I keep I keep busy a little bit. I'm in the midst of pr- producing uh, a uh, a short film that I uh, that was produced recently as a play, and uh, myself and the other lead actor decided to pre- produce it as a short film. So we're working on that right now. So yeah, we're keeping busy. You know, always good to keep busy. I love it. You're definitely someone for us to keep an eye out on. <laughs> Um, all right, so that concludes this segment of the Populous Papers. Jim, thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Populous Papers. We'll see you next time. Hey, I just wanted to give a big thanks to our guest, Jim Shipley, show director and producer, Myra Rodriguez, and Chris Cooley, who, as always, provided all of the music that you heard today. Also, I want to thank all of you for listening and let you know that our February show, Episode 3, will feature my long-anticipated interview with filmmaker Michael Ryan about Cinemagic and the clean energy revolution. We'll see you then.